And praise the Lord, the sermon's not chapters 1 through 3, because you guys would not be happy. And I probably wouldn't be either. But we are on our our little mini-series in the evening, looking at the seven churches. We've done chapter 1. We're moving into chapter 2, looking at Ephesus. Well, I have to say that the older I get, the more I find myself going to doctors. Don't laugh, you young people. It'll happen to you, too. And, of course, you go to a doctor to help prevent disease. You go to a doctor because you want a healthy body. And the best doctors are the ones that really care about you. They're not just there for the money, but they're there to help people. And as they do that, they're about the business of studying their patients. They want to get to know the body that they're serving so that they can see what's going on. And as they study diligently with discernment, this patient, this body, oftentimes they make a a prescription to bring health, to bring back health. Well, as we find ourselves here in chapter 2, we find ourselves as Jesus is addressing the seven churches, that he comes, the Lord of glory, the one who has eyes like fire, that sees all things perfectly. And Jesus comes, this great shepherd king, as the great physician. And he's taking a stroll in the midst of his churches. And he's studying his churches. He's studying his bride. He's looking deeply within each church and each believer so that he might prescribe what we need for spiritual health and life. So let's hear God's word. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Amen and amen. May the Lord write his blessing upon our hearts that his word would be filling us and transforming us. Well, we need a little historical background as we address these seven churches here in Asia Minor. We need to be reminded that they really and truly are historical churches with historical people. John was writing to actual churches in Asia Minor, what we call today Turkey, with People filling these churches up. That's the historical context. Real people, real Christians with real issues being written to by the Lord. 
the Word of God. But we also need to be reminded that this Word is for us and for every generation. It's the Word of the Lord forever and ever and ever. And it's true. We must take it serious. Let it hit our hearts. Well, Ephesus, what is this great city where this church is? It's a a metropolitan trade route. It's big. It's bustling. Think mega city with a mega economy, with all manner of temporal blessings. But at the very heart of it is great idolatry. Because the church in Ephesus was where the temple to Diana was, the Roman goddess, Diana. Of course, this pagan Roman religion with Diana at the center of it was a religion given over to cult prostitution because Diana was the goddess of fertility and the hunt and the chase. And so think about this great temple that's at the middle of this great city, Roman columns all the way around, white, glorious in its architecture, but given over to sexual immorality and idolatry and ugly, broken, pagan worship. That's the scene. But glory, hallelujah, there's a little church there. God has acted. He has worked. He has birthed a a new life of a new church, a church in the darkness. Because our God's a missionary God. He sends missionaries into the darkness of this world to, to see sinners saved. And so he sent forth Paul. He sent forth Timothy. It appears that he sent forth Priscilla and Aquila. And John himself had even served in Ephesus for a season. So here's this church born, alive, in the midst of the darkness, yet bearing witness And it's amazing as we consider this. Jesus comes and he he comes looking at this church and at the individual members and he he comes strolling through this place looking to see what is taking place in the hearts of these people in this church. And we have to remember who it is that's speaking to us. Verse 1 tells us the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand. In chapter 1, we've read about the glory of the appearing of this glorified Christ, the one who lived, the one who was crucified and died and yet resurrected and ascended on high. This is the one, the glorified one, that is addressing us. It's a, a holy picture of a holy terror in a sense that Jesus comes with fiery eyes and, and a tongue that's a sword. He sees all. He knows all. He looks into the very core of our hearts. He looks into the very core of this church and that church and every church. He sees the secret places. He knows all. And he sees the things that are attacking our souls, seeking to destroy our spiritual lives. And he identifies these things and then he prescribes what we need to have health and life and vitality for our souls. And so Jesus comes. And we can learn a lesson about the way that he comes and deals with us and that he comes forth with compliments along with his complaints. He speaks the truth and love to this church and to all of his churches and to all of his people. And that's what we see first tonight. This is our first main point of three. They're not all the same length, so don't worry. Our Savior is the great soul doctor who comes with compliments and complaints. 
He comes observing. He has the all-seeing eye. He studies. He knows. He examines. And he comes with with glorious compliments, doesn't he? We see it in verses 2, 3, and 6. I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles, that is, teachers, leaders of the church, but they're not. You found them out. You hated them. They're false. These are good compliments. This church here in Ephesus sounds an awful lot like our church, a doctrinally sound church. Loves the word of God, loves the truth of God. She's holding to doctrine. She knows scripture. She's like good Berean. She comes testing the words that she hears from others by the word, the Logos. And what does she do when she finds heretics, heterodoxy, false teaching? She names it, attacks it, and rejects it. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's a great compliment. Like us here at Carriage Lane, we, we don't hold the false doctrine. We hold to the Word of God. We want doctrinal purity. We want to be diligent and determined in our holding up the truth and living by the truth. Great compliment. And secondly, he says, you know, you also make the good and glorious confession. Now, this is really starting to sound like a Presbyterian and Reformed church. Verse 3, they are plodding along as a doctrinally solid church, patiently bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They make the good confession, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. They hold to the true truth. They confess the true truth. Verse 6, another compliment. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Church historians tell us that the Nicolaitans are mentioned, and this is probably a heretical sect that we see in, in Acts, that they taught falsehood about ethics and morals, specifically around sex. And they enticed the people of God to engage in sexual immorality. And of course, This church here, commended by the Lord Jesus, hated that. Sounds kind of like Carriage Lane, doesn't it? We hold the doctrinal truth and purity. We make the good confession. We reject sexual immorality. These are good things. Great compliments. And yet the compliments now stated come with complaints. The one with fiery, all-seeing eyes. He comes and he studies his bride collectively and individually. And he pierces even to the very core and the marrow of our being, of this church, that church, every church. He sees our hearts. He knows our works, our attitudes, our motives. He knows the intimate places of our hearts that we hide from the world and each other. And he says this. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Man, that hurts. That cuts to the heart. You've abandoned your first love. Think about that. Think about who's saying this. 
Here's our loving physician, our, our Savior God. He comes, he's, he's, he knows our hearts and our souls. He knows this church, and, and he says, you've abandoned your first love. How staggering. It cuts us to the heart, or it should. You see, in verse 4, what the Lord Jesus Christ sees in the heart there at Ephesus is the, the hidden blockage in the arteries of the church's heart and life that are dwelling there in the secret places and it's killing her. And it will bring forth devastation if not dealt with. You've lost your first love. You don't love me with the passion that you used to love me with. You don't serve me with the passion and the desire that you used to serve me with. You don't have joy for me now like you used to. This hurts. You see the Lord showing us and teaching us so much here, brothers and sisters. For every church of every age and every believer of every age until he comes again, this complaint, it should strike our hearts. We must hear the message of Jesus as he comes walking through the hallways of Carriage Lane Presbyterian Church and he inspects the body and knows the heart of this church and the heart of every believer. You see, we we need to hear this because we can so easily be given over to all the outward trappings of the busyness of church life. And it looks good and it is good. We're about Lord's Day worship and the corporate gathering and worship that's reformed according to God's Word and by the Spirit of God and true teaching and preaching and studying and praising and then out of the benediction we go forth throughout the week to those little ministries that we're part of as the church divides and goes and serves men's ministry women's ministry all the things that we do youth and families children small groups outreach evangelism but in our busyness what lurks in our heart collectively and individually. What's there in the secret places? We must heed the the great complaint of our Lord and consider this. He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. We got to deal with that. You've turned away, he says. It's painful. It's hurtful to hear. But it's for our good. He loves us. What takes first place in your heart, in your life? That's your love, right? The first love. You know, if you're married here tonight, I imagine that you fell in love at some point with your spouse. You remember what that was like? Falling in love. Come on. It was wonderful. Fall in love, filled with love. What was that first love like? You know, you just wanted to be around them all the time. You wanted to see them and talk to them and eat with them and play with them and just hang out. It was great. And when you were apart, what did you do? You longed for them. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. I want to be back with my love, my first love. You know, you wanted to give them your heart, your emotions, your affection, your love, your service, and your time. But for as exciting as that was for you to fall in love with your spouse, how much greater was that moment that you fell in love with your Savior? 
the joy, the freedom when you first believed. Wasn't it great? There weren't too many Bible studies. There weren't too many worship services. The first Lord's Suppers, the first opportunities to serve, it was great. The joy, the excitement. But you've lost your first love, Jesus says. That's his complaint to Ephesus. She's abandoned her Savior. She's departed. She's grown cool and cold. And she's in danger of falling away. I mean, imagine all the red lights flashing on your dashboard as a husband or a wife if your spouse came to you after five years or ten years or fifty years and said, you don't love me like you used to. What a warning. Well, when the Lord Jesus comes, he comes to bring healing. So do you see how dangerous this is? You know, on the outside, you can be going through the motions in a marriage. Everything looks good, but you're just there without giving your heart. Cool, then cold. And then what happens so often is you become strangers. We became estranged. And the next step was divorce. So what's going on here in Ephesus? What's the deal here in this historic city, this historic church, these real people that were really living the life. Well, what's going on is just like our bodies need attention, just like our gardens need attention, we need physicians and we need gardeners, your heart needs attention. That's what Jesus is teaching us. We must give attention to our hearts. Our hearts need fertilizing, they need pruning, they need care, they need Weeding, they need attention. The church's heart needs attention, the attention of the Lord. But when you're just going through the motions, outwardly bustling, neglecting the Lord, forget about Him, we begin to dry up individually and corporately. And so there's a great warning here. You've abandoned your first love. But hallelujah, Jesus is the loving heavenly shepherd king who is the great physician, so he comes with a prescription to heal what ails us. That's our second main point this evening. Our Savior is the great soul doctor, and he comes with the right prescription. And here it is. Remember, repent, and return. That's the prescription. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, remember, remember. Well, what in the world do we remember? Remember your Ebenezer. Remember your Ebenezers. Remember the mighty works of the Lord to save you. Remember what he did. He delivered you. He gave you a new heart. A new life, a new inheritance, a new power. It's called the gospel. Remember. You see, we forget who we're dealing with here. This is Jesus. And he knows all and loves all. And he desires for us to remember that he remembered us when we were dead and lost. You know, there's nothing more 
sad than seeing somebody who's lost their memory. It's horrible. When they don't know who they are, and they don't act like who they were. How sad when somebody confesses Christ. They've lived in the joys of his grace, and they've forgotten him. They don't even look like him anymore. In the motions of sanctification, they, they don't look like the Lord as they've been transformed. So Jesus says, remember. And what happens when you remember? You come to your senses. And you repent. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a lifelong thing. That's what Jesus is driving at here. We must examine our hearts to see if there be any bitter root of pride lingering seeking to suck the life and the joy out of our love affair with Jesus and remember that he's the God of all salvation and repent and do the things you did at first. That's the prescription. Verse 5, remember, remember that repentance is the work that flows out of God's grace in your life. That's why our confession, the shorter catechism, says that repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong thing. You see, true repentance does four very important things that Jesus wants us to see, just briefly. First, true repentance, when we remember, it comes forth with godly grief, evangelical sorrow. We're brokenhearted over our rebellion and our sin. We have godly grief and sorrow. We don't fake it. We say we're sorry, but in our hearts we're not. That's not what happens when we remember and repent. And secondly, repentance is both broad and general. You know, we can't just say, Lord, I've sinned in word, thought, and deed, and be done with it. True evangelical repentance names specific sins that are in your heart, lays them before the Lord, confesses them, drills down on them. And true repentance is not just words, but it's actions. We turn away from the sin and we run to Jesus And what do we do finally? What is the final action of true repentance that flows forth from remembering? We cast ourselves headlong upon God's mercy. Jesus. Well, this is the glory of what Jesus would have for us to recover our first love. When Martin Luther wrote the 95 Thesis, we've we've quoted a lot of Luther today, haven't we? (laughs) The very first one that kicked off the Reformation is this. When our Lord and our Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4, verse 17, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So this is the program. This is the prescription. We remember, we repent, and we return to the Lord, and we repeat. 
We do it again and again and again, each and every day of our lives. This is the prescription to returning to the Lord. Remember, repent, return, repeat. We do those things that we enjoyed at the first. Worship, prayer, praise, gathering, fellowship, serving, living and loving. And this leads us all the way to our final thought. These glorious promises that Jesus leaves for us at the end. We don't have time to do them justice, but this is the final thought. Our Savior is the great soul doctor who comes with powerful promises that persuade his bride. Powerful promises that come with powerful warnings. Rest, run, rejoice is what the Lord's telling us here. We're given this great promise to rest in the Lord and his love. And isn't that what the Lord's Supper is tonight as we gather together and we're to do this often in what? Remembrance of me. We rest in his love as we eat and drink with him, as we gather together at the supper and fellowship together as the body of Christ to commune with him, to know the the tenderness of our great lover, Christ, to awaken our hearts and to get the fires rolling that we might rest in him all the more and love him all the more. And as we come to the table, we rejoice. We're called to lay down our burdens. We're called to rest in his all-sufficiency for us, his righteousness live for us. The glories of his cross and his cleansing blood that washes away all of our sins But that comes with warnings. We have to see that this evening. You see that warning? That if you don't do this, then I will do. I will remove your lampstand unless you repent. It's a call to the church. It's a call to us individually. I read a book years ago in one of the classes I took by... Eugene Peterson, and it was entitled The Unnecessary Pastor. That book scared me. The Unnecessary Pastor. We want to be necessary, right? Well, getting into this book, reading his argument, basically what he declares is that a pastor, a born-again, true, living, breathing, spiritually alive pastor called to serve a spiritually alive church can get involved in doing that ministry and along the way somewhere we lose our way and what becomes more important than the ministry of the Lord is the ministry of man and we get really busy doing things like growing budgets and doing entertainment driven ministry so that we gather a crowd and we want to have more power and we want to have more you know of an image in the world, in the church, in the, in the, the community that we're in. And as that takes place, as, as a church becomes more intent upon serving self than in serving Savior, the pastor quickly becomes unnecessary because he's not doing what pastors do. And you know, it's not just pastors that can become unnecessary in the world within God's great commission to go forth, but, but churches can become unnecessary when we don't heed the warning to be about the great commission, 
I don't think the Lord's talking about losing salvation here. How could he be? The whole Bible's about salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his gift from beginning to end. But what he's talking about here is this warning that if we're not about the joyful procession of having a heart on fire for Christ individually and as a church, moving forward, serving within this dark and fallen and broken world that so needs living churches about the Great Commission, Christ taking captive the lost and bringing them in, he'll take our lampstand. We won't be useful in the Great Commission. We'll shrink back on that day of days when we meet the Lord face to face. Because we'll realize that we had such blessings, such gifts to serve the Lord. And yet we didn't run the race with everything we have. That's the warning. That we didn't serve the Lord who served us so faithfully. All the way to the cross. It'll be a hurtful thing. A grievous thing. This is the one who has done all that we might have life. Well, brothers and sisters, we're called to draw near. We're called to open up our hearts to the God who's already in there. As he's walking around, he prescribes what we need for greater life, greater health. He probes us. He admonishes us. And he prescribes what we need for wholeness. And we're doing it. Worship on the Lord's Day. Coming near to the tree of life. That's the final thing he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life was a sacramental tree in the garden. Think how important trees are, especially in the desert, in the wilderness. A great and glorious tree planted beside streams of living water gives refreshment and protection and life. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are gathering near to the tree of life, Jesus. As we eat and drink by faith in the Holy Spirit, we have the the energy, the hidden energy of the Holy Spirit exciting within our hearts the love of God for us so that we would love Him more. And each other more. So he beckons to us, come, eat and drink. Remember. Remember the gospel. Repent. Turn away from sin and self and turn to the Savior and return and repeat. And that's what we're doing. So we come to the supper. This glorious gift of the Lord Jesus And we need to be reminded that this is his supper. This is his table for us. And he's taken basic elements of bread and the fruit of the vine. And he's set them apart as a holy thing to adorn the word of promise. Because he knows we're weak. And we need the tangible and the physical in our hands and in our mouths. So that while the Spirit awakens our hearts all the more to his word of promise 
we can say we have been with the Lord really and truly, physically and spiritually, and he's for us. These signs and seals drive his promise deeper into our hearts and souls. The bread and the fruit of the vine, they don't turn into his actual body and blood, but by the Holy Spirit at work within our hearts, Jesus fills us afresh. And we really do eat and drink spiritually the good things of Christ.